So again, let yourself sit comfortably and at ease and listen, not so much to remember what's said, but at best to recognize if something, some part of it resonates with what you already know in your own heart to be true. I feel grateful just to be able to come and sit quietly with everyone in a culture that is so maddeningly busy for most of us. This from our National Poet Laureate of last year, W.S. Merwin. He writes, Little breath, breathe me gently, row me gently, for I am a river I am learning to cross. And we see it in this very simple way with our humanity and our mystery of incarnation and feel the breath, the life breath that we interbreathe with the trees and the Amazon and the breezes that come off the ocean all the way from Tahiti and other places across the Pacific. And just take the time to listen to ourselves, our own bodies, our own hearts and minds. And in making the space to listen, there comes a sense of, or if you will, an invitation of an inner freedom. The freedom not to resist experience or change experience. This isn't so much about fixing yourself. It's not a self-improvement project, although you've been trying that for a long time, I know. (laughs) What is that thing I always like to read from the author Florida Scott Maxwell, where she writes something like, you know, um, no matter how old she gets, um, a mother looks at her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, you know. (laughs) And meditation can become that, you know. We can get some idea, all right, I'm going to meditate and I'll fix myself. Good luck, you know. But it's different than that. It's really about the capacity to be present with a spacious mind and a compassionate or loving heart. To be present in the mystery of incarnation of human life. And as I say very often, the question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. Are we connected with something bigger than our to-do list and the projects. And it's not that there's something wrong with that. We need to do those things, but if that's the only thing we have, then something's lost. And when one traditionally goes into a Buddhist temple or monastery, you become part of what is called Sangha. Sangha means community of all those who are wishing to awaken or to understand or to free themselves. And the word Sangha really means all are welcome, everyone. Um, Not, the Buddha says, not by caste or race or creed or birth or ability is one noble or gender, but by the virtue of one's good heart. That's what nobility is. So a story for you. Am I gorgeous, my child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy? Yes, I say you are. 
The pink and teal dress is probably made of highly flammable material, some chemist's approximation of satin. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace the sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, I say you are. Thick blonde hair, blue eyes, rosy cheeks, flawless skin. This child is the American epitome of beauty. This child, my son. (laughs) He's four years old and he prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase, maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing with toy tractors, not because it matters to me, it doesn't, but because I'm already hearing in my head the name-calling he will face in kindergarten and for decades after. Many adults seem disturbed by the dresses, Strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball, trucks, and trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulders. Am I beautiful, he asks. And I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek. Always, I say, always. And so the invitation of meditation is a radical invitation. It's a radical invitation to every person, to whatever ability or orientation or gender or, or race or culture. All of this is welcome as part of the Sangha. The Sangha is living beings who are honored for your capacity to awaken. And this radical invitation is also to bring all of you to, to this moment, to the, to the present, to the reality of meditation. Because we live in a culture where everything's divided and you know, the body's taken care of in the gym and the you know, money in the marketplace and um, healing in the clinic or the hospital or wherever it happens to be, you know, and spirit... Sunday mornings in church or temple or wherever you happen to go, mosque or something like that. And everything's divided. And to come into meditation is to take your seat as the Buddha in the place of wholeness, in the place of your full humanity with the things that may have been rejected by the culture, rejected by yourself in different ways. And this is another story, a much older one that comes from the Buddhist texts. Ananda, who was the attendant to the Buddha and his cousin and known to be the most loving of all the monks, was sent by the Buddha on a mission and it was a hot day and he passed by a well near the village and seeing a young woman, Pakati, who was an outcast and untouchable in India, which means even if their shadow falls on your food, you can't eat it, if you can imagine that level of prejudice at that time, and asked her for water to drink. And she said, Oh, holy monk, I'm too lowly born, too humbly born to give you water. Do not ask anything of me, lest your holiness be contaminated, for I am of the low caste. And Ananda gazed at her and said, I ask not for caste, but for water, please. 
And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave Ananda water to drink, and he thanked her and went away. But she followed him. Hearing that he was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to that place and said to the Blessed One, let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells so that I may see and minister him to him, for I have come to love Ananda. Love at first sight or something like that. And the Buddha understood the emotions of her heart and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Accept then the kindness you've seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And though you are born in what is called the low caste, you will indeed be a model for noble women and noblemen everywhere and follow the path of justice and righteousness and you will outshine the royal glory of kings and queens. So there's something really radical about this to say no matter what circumstance or what conditions or what conditioning that you have had or that has come to you, there is a a dignity and a freedom of heart that is possible for you and for every human being. And to begin to meditate is an invitation to come to be present for this wholeness even the parts that we've closed off to. The fundamental teachings of mindfulness, which are outlined in one of the most common descriptions of the foundations of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, is mindfulness of the body and mindfulness of the body of the earth. That we pay attention to the senses and this physical incarnation we have with respect. And we pay attention to the trees and the environment and the earth on we live on which we live with respect. Mindfulness of the earth, kind of radical, huh? These days, but critical. Mindfulness of our own body, of how we eat and move and, and honor this body. Then there's mindfulness, the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. William O. Douglas said, Justice of the Supreme Court, said at the Supreme Court level where I work, of our decisions are made based on our feelings. The other 10% is the intellect used to justify how we feel about things. (laughs) This is handwritten from a bigger list of 500 feelings. Affectionate, ambitious, aggressive, anguished, ambivalent, angry, amused, amorous, aversive, antagonistic, antsy, apathetic, apoplectic, appreciative, (laughs) argumentative, blissful, brokenhearted, bonkers, bored, bad, calm, cheerful, claustrophobic, compassionate, concentrated, contracted, concerned, curious, defiant, delighted, depressed, disheartened, disillusioned, desirous, driven, dull, ebullient, etc. We have within us a river of feelings as we have this physical body that asks our attention. Also the feelings guide our life. And to be mindful means to come into a wise relationship with this river of feelings as we are in a wise relationship with the world, with the body of the world or the physical body. Mindfulness of the physical world, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, thoughts and images, 
Thoughts are the forerunner of, mind is the forerunner of what we imagine, so we live. And there's that cartoon I like to talk about from the New Yorker, which shows a car crossing the Utah desert, vast landscape, and the roadside billboard reads, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles. (laughs) That's kind of meditation for you. You sit quiet and you say, ah, I'm going to be aware of my breath, you know, and then sounds come and then there's a tension in the body because it's built up some. And then you notice that there is this river, waterfall of thoughts, perspectives, plans, remembering, he did, she did, I will, I should, I didn't, I, you know, and it doesn't stop. And then you can say, thank you for your opinion, you bow to it. And the capacity of mindfulness is to know and be aware of this body with respect, be aware of thought in the same way to know this is a planning or a, an angry or a sad or an excited or a loving or, or a fearful thought, to begin to become the witness of thought, the witnessing rather than to be entangled in thought. And then there comes to be some choice. Then we can respond wisely rather than be caught by it. So mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of thought. And then mindfulness of the Dharma, which means the relationship to things, to see that everything is impermanent. There's a river of thoughts and a river of feelings and a river of sound and sensations. And our life is a river. Everything is in change. And if you hold on, what happens? Rope burn, basically. (laughs) It hurts because things are going to change anyway. And so there is a, an understanding that life includes joy and pain, that includes praise and blame, that it includes gain and loss, sometimes in terrible ways, sometimes in magnificent ways. What's presented to us is this ever-changing river of experience that we call human incarnation. The capacity to be mindful allows us to be present, to respond wisely, to be free in its midst. Now, one of the things that happens as people begin to enter the spiritual path or develop or train themselves in mindfulness is you start to notice that there are areas where it's easy to be mindful and attentive and you can be more conscious there and take care of your body or your emotions or thoughts or plans, not get so caught up in the fears or judgments. But then there are there areas that aren't so easy, both inwardly and outwardly. Um, and this was something that took a while for those of us who went to Burma and Thailand and India and so forth and then came back and began to teach. It took a while to figure it out because there was this kind of thing I think Danny Goldman called it the halo effect. He thought, okay, if somebody becomes really mindful and wise, then everything will be hunky-dory, happy ever after, basically. And so you expect the Zen master or the Tibetan Lama or whoever it is, you know, not only to be wise about meditation, but you could also go and get advice about marriage or child-rearing, even though they've never been married and they've never had a kid. or sexuality, and they haven't done that, or they have done it, and either either way they don't know much about it, (laughs) as it turns out. And it's quite possible to do what's called the spiritual bypass, where you say, oh, I'm going to meditate and everything's going to be fine now. 
you know, because you don't want to deal with stuff. But what it turns out is that mindfulness actually invites and requires attention to these different dimensions of our life. Body and the body of the earth, feelings, mind, and then a wise relationship to all of the things that come to us, to one another, to our relationship with each other, to the ever-changing world of duality, of joy and sorrow and gain and loss. And without it, well, you all know, you can have an Olympic athlete who is completely tuned to every nuance of their body and is an emotional idiot, right? Or you can have some Nobel Prize winning philosopher or physicist, you know, who can't find their feet or their shoes or their body. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Or even somebody who's pretty good with emotions but doesn't know really about the stories they tell themselves that guide a lot of their life. So it turns out that the invitation for freedom is also a a request, a requirement to turn our attention and become conscious in all of the major dimensions of our humanity, of this body, of this heart, with its feelings, of this mind, of our relations to one another, with no part left out. At first also, when we began to teach retreats, colleagues of mine, Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and so forth, uh, 35 years ago or more, we tended to focus on the mind, on wisdom, and on making a great, sometimes even heroic effort, because that's what you learn in those Zen temples in the forest ascetic monasteries. Very good for young men, you know, initiation, stuff like that. But it turned out it didn't work terribly well for a lot of people because the whole notion of heroic effort and trying to struggle and strive and get yourself pure and clean and so forth played into people's self-judgment. I'm not doing it right. Their own negative feelings about themselves. It played into people's unworthiness. And their striving and struggling actually made it so that they couldn't be mindful of what was, because they kept thinking there was some nirvana to get to someplace else rather than where they were. And it turned out that that wisdom mind needed to be wedded to a tender heart, to care, compassion, respect, not so much striving, but rather the respect of this is the way things are. In certain Zen monasteries, it's played out in a good way. There are two main roles in certain Rinzai monasteries, the Shoji and the Jikijitsu. The Jikijitsu is the badass guy, basically, who carries the stick and whacks you if you're sleeping a little bit, you know, or if you don't get to the Zendo meditation hall on time, we'll actually go to where you're sleeping and grab you by the collar and say, get in here, you know, it's time to sit. And so he's really the kind of enforcer to make sure that you stay disciplined and really do it. The Shoji is more like the mother of the Zendo. And if you're sniffling, they say, would you like tissues? Do you want me to go out and get you some medicine, some ginger tea? Maybe that would help you feel better. And the Shoji's job is to kind of support and care for and tend. But the part that's most interesting, so people play both those roles, 
is that after a year of being jikijitsu and carrying the stick, or being shoji and tending and caring for everybody, you have to switch roles. And the jikijitsu has to be the shoji, and the shoji has to take turn as a jikijitsu. And you start to see what's really critical is that you contain all of these. And then you start to find a wise balance between effort and energy and courage and tenderness and respect and compassion and that they fit together. So I'm talking about these themes tonight in part because um, it's a little bit like uh, going to the opera or something like that. An hour or two ago, this room did not look the way it uh, does now. It was filled with flowers, and in the octagon in the middle of the room, which you can see there's a kind of octagonal set of um, wood, uh, darker wood on the floor, um, sat about 50 or 60 monks and nuns, um, surrounded by bowers of flowers and then a couple of hundred other people, and it was an ordination ceremony for three women to become bhikkhunis, or fully ordained Buddhist nuns, um, and a big celebration, and it was absolutely beautiful. Um, and it was also somewhat radical in its own way. Um, when we first got this land from Nature Conservancy to tend and care for and build the center here, um, one of the principles that our community decided on very early and it came from our teachers, Julie Wester, Sylvia Borstein, Anna Douglas, and those of many of us, myself and others who were teaching here, is that whatever we did here should be done in a way that was both equal and respectful for men and women. And so we've tried to foster that in every way, both in terms of the training of our teachers and the women's retreats and men's retreats and things that we offer, and more deeply in the respect for the feminine. And so in this particular ordination, which was done in a circle in the center of the room, was one of the first bhikkhuni ordinations in the Theravada, in our tradition from Southeast Asia, that's happened for a thousand years. Um, For a long time there were Buddhist nuns, but not for the last thousand years within this tradition. And only in the last decade or so have these ordinations begun to take place again. Um, And they haven't happened because, for whatever historical reason, the nuns order died out. And then there became a whole group of elders, elder monks, who decided that if it died out, it should never be revived. You needed the Buddha to start it. And they had a whole story they made about it. And so when women said, well, we want to be equal to the monks, they said, oh, it can't be, it's not possible. And they stonewalled them. And they said, it's not right in the tradition and according to the custom and we can't do it and so forth. Um, and this whole kind of story that grew up in various Buddhist countries was told somewhat during this ceremony. One of the nuns who was going to ordain said, I remember I went to the monastery and asked to be ordained and they said no. And I went back to this where I was meditating with this other woman and and we got an orange sheet and we put it around ourselves and tried to imagine what it would be like since we wanted to be nuns even if they wouldn't let us. Um, So this is the words of, where can I find you? one of the earliest Buddhist nuns 
2,500 years ago. At last free. At last I am a woman free. No more tied to the kitchen, stained amidst the stained pots, no more bound to the husband who thought me less than the shade he wove with his hands, no more anger, no more hunger. I sit now in the shade of my own tree, meditating thus, I am happy, I am serene, I am free. So these women aspired to this very much, but there is, or there was, there is in the Buddhist world, um, also quite a patriarchal history, if you look back, and kind of medieval. Um, And it's hierarchical and renunciate, life-denying in certain ways, focused a lot on the training of man, and in some ways the denigration of the feminine. But that has begun to change. It certainly changed here in the West, where the blessings of the masculine and many of its great qualities are now being combined with the spirit of interdependence and life-affirming qualities of the feminine, um, where our teaching has become more relational, more democratic. In some ways, we're not in the Middle Ages anymore in Buddhist tradition. And the story that was told about this and all the resistance that there was in Thailand and Burma and in these various monasteries, there were a few Catholic nuns who were here listening to these nuns tell their stories of 20 and 30 years of trying to get equal rights, basically, to, to practice. And the nuns, the Catholic nuns, were nodding, yeah, right, we know this story very well. It's not just in the Buddhist tradition. They were grinning. Because what happened is that this room was filled with elders, both male and female, from many Buddhist traditions. And some of the greatest scholars in the world came and said, these stories that have been made up that disenfranchise women are wrong. And here's the text, and here's the teachings, and here, more than anything, is the heart of awakening. And so it was historic. It was also really beautiful to see, because in my lifetime there's been this evolution. And I remember 20 years ago leading a meeting at the Dalai Lama's home palace in Dharamsala of Buddhist teachers from around the world. And one of the big themes was the role of women. And in particular, how difficult it was. Ani Tenzin Palmo, who was the uh, woman who wrote um, Cave in the Snow and spent 12 years in a cave on the border of Tibet, a really remarkable, beautiful being, who the Dalai Lama respects a lot. She told the Dalai Lama about what the conditions were for the women in the nunneries and places where she had gone to practice before and after being in the cave. And they were so abysmal that the Dalai Lama put his head in his hands and he wept. And he said, I didn't know it was that bad. I must do something. And then Sylvia Wetzel, many of you have heard this story, who was a Buddhist teacher from Germany, stood up. I said, Sylvia, she said, Your Holiness, may I teach you some meditation? Which is really chutzpah. I have to say, you know, here we are, and it's in his house, right, and all these senior lamas are around, and everybody's being deferential, your holiness, your holiness. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like being called your holiness. Poor guy, you know, but anyway. And he said, of course, you know, and he said, okay, what is this woman up to? And she said, so we're in this beautiful room, and on the walls are the Tibetan tankas or paintings of various elders, 
of the lineage for the last thousand years, and there's the Dalai Lama surrounded by a, a dozen or fifteen of various high lamas from different traditions. And she said, I'd like to invite you to close your eyes and do a visualization. I know you do that very well. So everybody closed their eyes. And she said, and I'd like you to envision that you are in this very room at this time, and we're seated here just in the same way we have been with one small change. That is that the Dalai Lama who you see seated in front is in a feminine form, Her Holiness the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama, who was always born in a woman's body, even though she could be born as a man, but she takes the woman's body because it is a more suitable vehicle for demonstrating the Dharma of opening and letting go and transformation. Um, And she's surrounded by all of her senior advisors, all of whom just happen to be women. all the female Rinpoches. And then if you look at the paintings around the room, you'll notice that while, of course, men are welcome as equal partners in the Dharma, that the pictures and paintings you see of all the great elders of the last thousand years happen to be pictures and paintings of enlightened women. And you take a breath and you feel how beautiful it is to be in the presence of Her Holiness and all the great Rinpoche's and the enlightened women, and, and of course we, we acknowledge that men can be enlightened equally as women, and we invite you to sit in the back of the room um, and listen to the teachings, and also we would like it if you could help us in the kitchen a bit afterward. And I tell you, when the eyes open in that room afterward of these lamas, it's like nobody didn't know what hit them, you know. It was just great. It was a beautiful moment. Um, Thank you, Sylvia, yes. But what's happened in the last 20 years since then is uh, a transformation that now can't be stopped. And women have become ordained and elders in Sri Lanka, and they're starting to, in Thailand and Burma, some very courageous ones, and some in the Tibetan lineage. And they're basically out of the closet, um, and that's it, you know, game over, I'm happy to say. Um, and no amount of male authority at the moment is able to stop this transformation. So I read you another text, um, and it's actually a, uh, a contemporary version of a text written by a friend of mine, uh, Rick Fields, who died a few years ago. Um, and this is how it goes. It's called The Buddha and the Goddess. Thus I have envisioned, once, the Buddha was walking along the forest paths in the oath grove at Ojai. And this was written hmm, 15 years ago or so when Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, led a retreat for men and women down in the oak grove in Ojai. And Rick, who was a poet, wrote it in the form of a Mahayana Buddhist sutra. Once the Buddha was walking along the forest path in the oak grove at Ojai, walking without arriving anywhere, or having any thought of arriving or not arriving. And lotuses, shining like the morning dew, miraculously appeared under every step, soft as silk beneath the toes of the Buddha. When suddenly, out of the turquoise sky, dancing in front of his half-shut, inward-looking eyes, shimmering like a rainbow or a spider's web, 
transparent as the dew on a lotus flower, the goddess appeared, quivering like a hummingbird in the air before him. She, for she was surely a she, as the Buddha could clearly see with his eye of discriminating awareness wisdom, was mostly red in color, though when the light shifted she flashed like a rainbow. She was naked except for the usual flower ornaments goddesses wear. Her long hair was deep blue, her eyes fathomless pits of space, her third eye a bloodshot song of fire. The Buddha folded his hands together and greeted the goddess thus, O goddess, why are you blocking my path? Before you, before I saw you, I was happily going nowhere. Now I'm not so sure where I go. You can go around me, said the goddess, twirling on her heel like a bird darting away, but just a little way away. Or you can come after me, but you can't pretend I'm not here. This is my forest, too. And with that, the Buddha sat, supple as a snake, solid as a rock, beneath a bow tree that sprang full-leafed to shade him. Perhaps we should have a chat, he said, After years of arduous practice, at the time of the morning star, I penetrated reality and... Not so fast, Buddha, the goddess said. I am reality. The earth stood still. The oceans paused. The wind itself listened. And a thousand bodhisattvas and dakinis magically appeared to hear what would happen in this conversation. I know I take my life in my hand, said the Buddha, but I am known as the fearless one, so here goes. And he and the goddess, without further words, exchanged glances. Light rays like sunbeams shot forth so brightly that even Sariputra, the all-seeing one, had to turn away. And then they exchanged thoughts, and the illumination was as bright as a diamond candle, and then they exchanged minds. And there was a great silence as vast as the universe that contains everything. And then they exchanged bodies and then clothes. And the Buddha arose as the goddess. And the goddess arose as the Buddha. And so on back and forth for a hundred thousand, hundred thousand kalpas of time. If you meet the Buddha, you meet the goddess. If you meet the goddess, you meet the Buddha. Not only that, this. The Buddha is emptiness. The goddess is bliss. The goddess is emptiness. The Buddha is bliss. And that is what and what not you are. It's true. So here comes the mantra of the goddess and the Buddha, the unsurpassed non-dual mantra. Just to say this or hear this mantra, to hear one word of it makes everything the way it truly is. Okay. So here it is, Earthwalker, Skywalker, Hey Silent One, Hey Great Talker. Not two, not one, not separate, not apart. This is the heart. Bliss is emptiness, emptiness bliss. Be your breath, ah, smile, hey, and relax. Remember, you can't ever miss. And so I read that in honor of what happened. 
in this room just a couple of hours ago that was beautiful and historic and magnificent and inspiring. And it's interesting to talk about the, this to the youngest generation of Dharma practitioners and meditators and people who are interested in the Buddhist tradition because they assume equality. You know, it's just like younger women don't really pay much attention really to what happened in the decades of the 50s and 60s and 70s of, of the liberation of women. They assume equality and they want it. And then they say, well, that's not enough. We also want our dharma and our teachings to include the mountains and the rivers and the oceans and the beasts. We want an ecological dharma. As Chief Seattle says, if all the beasts were gone, men would surely die of loneliness of spirit for what happens to the beasts happens to man. And so those who are young say we can't have the Dharma alone in the temples. It has to be out in the oceans, in the forests. And they want a Dharma that includes justice to occupy whatever needs to be occupied. (laughs) Yes. And a Dharma that is willing to tell the truth about racism and economic injustice and a Dharma that's integrated in every part of life. Martin Luther King, our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring the eternal rejection of poverty, racism, and militarism. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, one's race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all beings. And when I'm speaking of love, I'm speaking of that unstoppable force which all the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is the key that unlocks the door which leads to freedom and ultimate reality. So we come to sit and meditate, and in some way it's a very simple activity just to stop. Not wave our arms so much, not be so busy, not text anybody for a few minutes or answer your email or whatever. And just to begin to listen to this mystery of being incarnate on this wild planet in a human body. And then as we listen, we begin to allow the outer and inner to be wed with a kind of graciousness and respect. This is mindfulness and compassion. And it's not that it's easy. You sit and there's the tension of your body that's carried around and you get quiet and you notice all the places that you're holding and it says, remember me? Ah, It's time to sit and feel the tension and allow it little by little to open and soften. Or you sit with your grief, the unfinished business of the heart, because you've been too busy doing important things, maybe, to really sit down and weep the tears that you carry for some loved one lost, or some dream unfulfilled, or something you care about in the world. Or maybe you feel your longing, or your love, or your creativity. Or maybe you just sit with the loneliness, or the anxiety, 
the fearful stories, as Mark Twain said. My life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? (laughs) Those kind, you know. And you take your seat in the middle and you bow to them. It's like that story of the family that go to the, went to the restaurant and little seven-year-old kid and his parents and go around the table, make their orders and say to the little boy, so what is it you'd like to eat? And he said, um, I'd like a hot dog and root beer, please. And his mother said he'll have meatloaf, mashed potatoes, carrots, and a glass of milk. The waitress goes around, takes the other couple of orders, and as she's leaving the table, she says, would you like ketchup or mustard on your hot dog? And the little boy looks up as she walks away and says, you know, she thinks I'm real. And there's a kind of respect that we offer in meditation to the whole of ourselves, and to the parts that are weeping and the parts that are joyful, to the loneliness we carry. As Rumi says, don't surrender your loneliness too quickly. Let it season you as few ingredients can. You take your seat in the middle of the tainted glory of your humanity with a gracious heart, with a wise heart. And as you do, as you let yourself take time to meditate and become present and become intimate with, there's a beautiful phrase in the Zen teachings of Zen Master Dogen where he says to become enlightened is to become intimate. Sometimes it's translated as intimate with all things, but the literal translation is to become enlightened, is to become intimate. Intimate with your own breath and body and feelings and longings and love and all those around you. To become present in that way. As you do, then you remember what matters when you really pay attention. A poem from Ellen Bass. She writes... It's called, If You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving back the ragged stubs, you might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, When the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember, they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? If you knew you'd be the last to touch someone, what if you knew? (laughs) 
So respect does not mean a kind of bland oneness, the melting pot homogeneity, you know, we're all the same. We're not. It means the harmony or the integration of difference, of joy and sorrow, of gain and loss, of birth and death, of male and female, of the healthy masculine and the healthy feminine. It means taking your seat as the Buddha in your life and remembering that it's possible to live with a dignity and a freedom. And then you come to realize this is the work, to love well, to live fully where you are, to give yourself, to live moment by moment in the reality of the present because it's all we have, to live with a free heart. And when it's time to let something go, to let it go. I have a book that I've kept um, for a number of years now of pictures of offerings at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And probably many of you have been there in Washington, that amazing long black wall with the 58,000 names on it. And the book shows people leaving letters or flowers or teddy bears or things that belong to those who died or notes to fathers that they will never see. And one of the notes that it shows that was left there along with a copy of a picture, a kind of greenish photograph, says this, Dear Sir, for 22 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day. We faced one another on the trail in Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life I'll never know. You stared at me so long, holding your AK-47, and yet you did not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting the way I was trained. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture and your daughter's, because the picture there shows this young Vietnamese soldier holding his seven-year-old daughter. Each time my heart and guts burn with the pain of guilt, for I have two daughters myself now, and I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland, and above all else, I now can respect the importance that life must have held for you. I suppose that is why I am still here and you are not. But it is time for me to continue my life to release this pain and guilt. Please forgive me. Forgive me, sir. Forgive me, sir. So this was left by a man named Richard Luttrell who had to carry as the one million veterans and people who are coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan to our country in these years had to carry the images and the deeds of war in their souls somehow. And I wonder how we are greeting them and how we are really listening to them and their stories because they need it so much. 
you know. So Richard Luttrell carried this and carried the grief, and it's not just the grief of what you see, as these soldiers will say, and it's not just the grief of what has happened around you, the killing and the devastation, but it's the grief of what you did that you almost can't speak. But somehow Richard Luttrell, in doing this, in offering these words, began to find a voice for the sorrow that he carried at the center of his being. And after this, he went back to Vietnam. And he went to Hanoi with the little picture that was shown in this book. And he went to the archives, and they could see from the uniform what platoon, what regiment in the North Vietnamese army this man had come from. And eventually they found out who he was. And Richard Luttrell went to the village and met this man's daughter because he wanted to return the picture. And he wanted to return the picture and tell her about how much respect he had for her father and simply to ask her forgiveness. And he did, and he found her. The long story of how he did. And after he did that, she gathered the villagers around her and introduced him to them and said, I feel that this man now is carrying my father's spirit. And my father's spirit is in this man. So you sit and you face the suffering of life. Anybody not have it? You can have your $8 back, right? You do. I mean, it's, it's unbearable beauty and an ocean of tears. It is. This is humanity. And you're asked to be present with dignity and graciousness and a sense of inclusion of your whole being and the whole being of others. And meditation is an opportunity to bow to what is true and to hold it with a heart that is both wakeful and free with compassion. And sometimes you sit and just acknowledge what's so. And sometimes you sit and you have to let go of things. Hi, Sarah. Thank you. Delivery. I will. FedEx, here we go. Sarah takes care of Monday nights a lot. Thank you, Sarah. You don't have to go to Vietnam. You don't have to travel to the Himalayas. You have enough stuff to work with right where you are. (laughs) The place to forgive and ask forgiveness. The place to meet your life with dignity. The place to find a space of awareness and stillness and silence and compassion that can hold it all, and then to meet one another. What if it was the last moment, the last touch you had with someone? How would you feel? How would it be? I end with a poem from Lynn Park, who used to live around here and gave this to me. 20 years ago or more. 
She writes, she writes, take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Consider yourself blessed. The stones that break your bones will build an altar of your love. And I read this here recently, I should tell this story. She had brittle bone disease, which meant as a child, she broke her bones 15 times trying to learn to walk or ride a bike. The stones that break your bones will build the altar of your love. Your home is the garden. Carry its odor hidden in you into the city. Suddenly your enemies will buy seed packets and fall to their knees to plant flowers in the dirt by the road. They'll call you friend and honor your passing among them. And when asked who was that, they'll say, oh, that one has been beloved by us since before time began. Give everything away except your garden, your worry, your fear, your small-mindedness. Your garden can never be taken from you. Take the time to meditate, to pray. It is the sweet oil that eases the hinge into the garden so the doorway can swing open easily. You can always go there. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. And let your awareness be spacious, open like the sky. And let the heart be gracious and kind as well to whatever is present. The fears, the longings, the love and joy. An Arabic proverb, a bird does not sing because it has an answer. 
It sings because it has a song. <clears throat> Carry your song. Each of you has a unique song that's never been sung in this universe. It's kind of amazing, you know, that the universe could make a billion trillion stars and make you. Wild, huh? But it's so. You each have a song to carry. <clears throat> and it's possible, says the Buddha, to you, O nobly born, O sons and daughters of the awakened ones, it's possible to sing your song with a free heart, no matter where you are, what your circumstance. So let's end this evening with a very simple chant, and then we'll go out into the autumn night. <clears throat> and in in India, when you meet somebody, the most common greeting is to put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor you, I honor the divine within you, I honor that divine spark, that secret beauty of spirit that was born into your weird-looking body. Right? And the root of that word, namaste, in Sanskrit is the word namo, which means to bow to or pay respects. And this afternoon in that ceremony, there was a lot of bowing, um, but it was also bowing with tears. There was so much courage of these women who, some of them had spent 20 or 25 years working to finally come to the kind of equality that they had gained. And, um, such uh, beauty in it. So we'll chant Namo nine times. And as you do, let yourself bow to whatever calls to you. It might be to your own courage or dignity or to things that are difficult in you that you need to respect. Or it might be to someone around you that you realize you have to offer a bow of respect. Or it might be some place in the world or someone who's doing something beautiful or someone you consider an enemy that needs a bow of respect them too. Na mo Na sing because it has an answer. It sings because it has a song. May you carry your song beautifully. Thank you.
Thank you for your kind attention. A couple of quick announcements. We need some folks to help put chairs and cushions away and clean up. Are there some people who would stay and do that? Raise your hand just to know there's a handful of them. Great. And Simone needs a ride to Fairfax. If Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.